Amen. Well, good morning, church. So good to see each of you again. Uh, thank you for worshiping with us this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, open up to Matthew chapter 18. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, we're going to be in verses 21 through 35 in just a minute. Um, and if you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. You can look on the screens with us. We'll have the scripture on the screen for you. Um, so, hey, I'm excited to announce uh, that we will start our spring sermon series on February 26th. Uh, and so we're going to be going through the New Testament book of Colossians. Uh, Colossians is just a fascinating, amazing letter from the Apostle Paul. So we're going to be going through that starting February 26th. And so we have scripture journals. The ESV uh, is the version that we preach from here at Kernan. And so we have the ESV scripture journal for you that you can purchase today for $5 out in the lobby um, after the service. And we'll have more next week as well. But these scripture journals are great. We've been using these for about a year now here at Kernan when we go through a long series through a book of the Bible. <clears throat> They're really great because they help you focus as you're, as you're listening to the sermon. You can take notes. Uh, you can underline key words in the scripture. So you have the scripture on one side of the page, and then you have note-taking room on the other side. So I think it's just a really excellent tool uh, for just five bucks. I mean, this is a great tool for you to use um, to really think deeper about God's Word as we study it together. And you can take this home, of course, and use it for personal Bible study during the week as well to meditate on what you've learned and on the Scriptures. So anyways, we'll have those for sale after the service today. But today we are continuing our uh, little quick three-week mini-series on love. We're talking about love without limits. And so we are looking at three different parables or short stories that Jesus told uh, that illustrate what it looks like to love God and to love others. So before we dive into that today, uh, would you pray with me? Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless his word uh, as we look at it today together. Jesus, we thank you so much for just allowing us to be here God, as the church, as the body of Christ, as we open up the Word of God, Lord, we know that you are the one true God and you have communicated to us. You have revealed who you are to us through your Word. And so I pray as we look at your Word today and as we look at this story that you told, would you open our eyes, would you open our hearts to your truth? Show us today what it really looks like to love the way you love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's Valentine's Day almost, right? Tuesday, is that when it is? Tuesday? I should probably know this. Um, last week, we're, we talked about love, but not so much the Valentine's Hallmark kind of love. No, we're talking about the love of God, and, and we looked at God's limitless, limitless love for us and how the only way that we can even love Him is because He first loved us. Jesus even commands us to love. If you look in Matthew 22 on the screen, Jesus told us what? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. He also said, so, so he said that's the greatest commandment, the first and greatest, but there's a second great commandment that we should also seek to obey. He said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus is summarizing in just this simple couple of sentences, he is summarizing the entire message of the Bible. That we are commanded to love God because he first loved us, and therefore we should love each other. 
Now, the evidence that Jesus says that somebody truly belongs to God is if they have his love in their hearts displayed and evidence towards others. Look, look at this in John chapter 13. You can look on the screen. In John 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So that's very interesting, but also possibly disturbing. Because what Jesus is saying here is, hey, you know how you will know for sure that you have a relationship with God, that you are a true follower of Jesus Christ? It's not by coming to church a lot. It's not by giving to the poor. It's not by all these things that you think you have to do to check a list off, right? It's because it, what, what Jesus says is if we love one another, that is true evidence that we have embraced the love of God. And so, yes, we give to those who are in need and the poor. We love and serve one another and we do all those things, but we don't do them because we're trying to earn God's love. We do them because we have God's love. Do you see the difference? That's what Jesus is saying here. If you have truly been loved by God and you recognize his love for you, how could you not love others? That is the true hallmark characteristic of someone who's been changed by the power of Jesus Christ. They love others more than they love themselves. I don't know about you, but I struggle with that, right? I mean, I struggle to love others more than I love myself because I love myself. Do you not love yourself? I mean, we all do, right? We think about ourselves a lot, don't we? I mentioned last week, even if you have low self-esteem or high self-esteem, either way, you're thinking about yourself a lot, we always think about ourselves, at least typically, it's our default, it's our sinful nature and inclination to think about ourselves before we think about others. So today we're going to look at one of the crucial components and evidences that we truly love others. So we're going to be specific today. One of the most compelling evidences that you have love from God in your heart and you extend that to others is one word, forgiveness. Now, to help us think through this, we're going to look at another parable today, a short, illustrative story that Jesus told his followers in Matthew chapter 18. So, in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, Jesus, Jesus gives clear, practical steps for dealing with someone who sins against you. So, if you've been wronged by someone, right, another Christian brother or sister, Jesus gives clear steps for how to deal with that person's sin against you, okay? But this gets the apostle Peter, right, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, it gets him thinking, right? So he hears Jesus say this, he's listening, and, you know, Peter, Peter's that guy, he's like your friend who always says what everybody else in the room is thinking, you know what I mean? Like, he's the only one brave enough to say, uh, hey, Jesus, I actually have a question, and I think you might be wrong, right? He's the guy, right? He's the one who steps up and says, I'm confused. I have a question. I'm going to say what everybody else is thinking, and that's exactly what he does. Look at this. In Matthew 18, verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? 
as many as seven times, <laughs> right? You can almost hear Peter in his voice. You can almost hear it like, hey, Jesus, I'm just curious though, like, because I have this one friend who keeps bothering me and doing the same thing, and I'm kind of tired of forgiving him, okay? So how many times do I have to forgive him? Surely not more than seven, right? I mean, that's a good, let's just stop there, okay? So eighth time, like, dude, I'm done with you, right? Is that what, is that what we do? That's what Peter's thinking? Okay, so what about these repeat offenders? Surely there's a limit, right? But Jesus' answer is shocking. Look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Wow, 77 times? Some translations say 70 times seven. If that's what Jesus said, 70 times seven, then like me, Peter probably got out his iPhone and started, you know, found the calculator app. Like, what, what is that again for something? For Okay, so 77 times, Jesus says, so you see, the number in Jewish, or the number seven in Jewish literature was symbolic for completion, right? Or, or to be whole. So this is kind of a play on words, right? Jesus says then 77 would, would, ind- would indicate an unlimited number of times, an infinite number of times. So many times that you can't even keep count. Now, why would Jesus expect us to know how to forgive this much or even want to forgive people that much? Why would he expect us to do that? Well, that's what the story he tells next answers. Jesus tells this story that I think is fascinating and shocking. Look at verse 23. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Okay, so for whatever reason, the the time has come for this king to settle his accounts, his financial accounts. And and that's his right to do, right? As, As king, it's his right. It's okay. It's more than fair for him to settle his financial accounts. It's completely fair. But this first servant that owes him money doesn't just owe him some money. He owes him 10,000 talents. Now, in our modern minds, you're like, what? I don't know. I only have one definition for the word talent. What is that, right? Now, we don't know what that means in our modern minds, but we do know what it means in the ancient world. In the ancient world, get this, one talent, one talent was about, was equal to 20 years worth of one day laborer's wages. 20 years worth of work was one talent. And Jesus says, 10,000 talents? What? So the modern day equivalent, get this, all right? The modern day equivalent of this amount would come out to about $6 billion. Six billion dollars? How in the world did this guy rack up that much debt, right? I mean, did he, did, he, did he bet on when Tom Brady's retirement was gonna be? Like, he just put it all in? I mean, what happened, right? He really racked up the debt here, so obviously he's done something wrong, right? Anybody who knows this man racked up this much debt would have known to get to that level, you've probably done something pretty serious and pretty wrong. 
You've at least abused the king's money. You've abused the wealth and not been a good steward of what he has given you. So this is obviously hyperbole, right? It's an intended exaggeration. Jesus' point, his point is this is an insurmountable debt that this man could never repay. It's impossible, right? Even Elon Musk would be like, whoa, man, that's a lot, right? Six billion dollars? So Jesus says, this guy cannot repay this debt. He never, ever will. Verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So this was a common practice in the ancient world But the point is this, it's fair. It's fair for the king to require the debt to be paid. That's more than fair. Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. You see, the servant servant says, I just need more time. Just have patience with me. I promise I'll pay you back. Just, I need more time. But all the time in the world, a lifetime of trying to pay back this debt, $6 billion, it would never work, right? It doesn't matter what he would try to do. It doesn't matter what he would try to bet on. He would never, ever dig himself out of that hole. And the king, the king, I mean, he knows that. The king knows that the debt is too great. He knows the debt cannot be repaid. He sees the servant's cry for patience. The fair and just thing to do would be to throw the servant in jail. But what does the king do? Verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He forgave him that much Money? I mean, would you do that? He gives him something infinitely greater than just patience, right? I mean, the servant asked for more time, and the king says, I'm going to give you something way better than that. He forgives the debt completely, all of it. Think of what cost this must have come to the king. Think of the practical loss he would have to absorb for such a great amount. You know, this is really unfathomable that a king would forgive such a foolish person, such an unwise servant like this, and have to deal with all the fallout that comes with just wiping his debt away, right? It's costly. It it doesn't just, you can't just sweep that under the rug. This is costly to the king. But the servant, boy, this servant, I mean, how grateful should he be, right? Like, how grateful should this guy be? The king just changed his entire life. His life has changed forever. He's just been released from a lifetime of slavery and trying to pay back a debt that he would never be able to. So, hey, what does the servant do next? Well, this is the shocking part. Look at verse 28. But when that same servant went out, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. 
So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. How could he treat somebody like that? How could he treat someone else like this after receiving the greatest gift of his life? Just so you know, 100 denarii, that's equivalent to about $12,000 in today's terms. I mean, that's not insignificant, but compared to $6 billion, like, dude, you just got $6 billion taken off your shoulders, and now you're going to literally choke this guy for $12,000? Obviously, something is seriously wrong with this man's heart. Something didn't click in his heart when the king forgave him of this great debt. He didn't appreciate what the king did for him. He's only concerned about himself. Jesus concludes, verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What is Jesus teaching us in this story? You know, when we look at a parable in the New Testament, one of these short stories, there's really just one major point that Jesus is communicating, and it's this. Jesus is telling us, as God has forgiven us, so we must forgive others. As God has forgiven us, so we must forgive others. You see, in this overarching truth, we can learn three sub-points today that I want to point out about forgiveness in this parable. We're going to look at the basis for forgiveness, the motivation for forgiveness, and the practice of forgiveness. So let's talk about, number one, the basis for forgiveness. In other words, man, why even bother? Like, why even bother forgiving other people? Just because we're told to? That doesn't really motivate me. I'm not motivated to, to forgive people just because somebody tells me to. So what's the real basis for forgiveness in general? Well, notice Jesus starts this parable like so many of his others. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, right? Or in other words, it's like this. So the kingdom of God serves, as Jesus says, as the model for how we should think about forgiveness. That's what Jesus is explaining here. So when we think about forgiveness in our context in your life today, somebody that's wronged you, the first place you need to look is the scriptures to talk about and to learn and understand exactly what forgiveness is. So this means that we can't just look to worldly examples or norms or, or catchphrases about forgiveness. Like, so one of the popular catchphrases about forgiveness out there in the world today, you hear people say this all the time, right? Well, I'll forgive, but I can't forget. Okay, so there may be some truth to that, but that's not out of the Bible, right? 
So we can't look at our own experiences. We can't look at what we've heard other people say for a lesson on forgiveness. There is only one definition of forgiveness. We need to base our entire concept of what it means to forgive someone on. And this story that we looked at today illustrates that so well. Think about the characters in this story, right? The king, who does the king represent in this story? He represents Jesus, right? The king is Jesus. It is right and fair that one day Jesus will call humanity's debt of sin into account, right? So this king was settling his accounts. We believe here at Kernan, as the, the, the traditional Christian belief that Jesus Christ will return one day and he is going to settle all accounts, so to speak. In other words, he is going to call into account all the debt of sin that humanity owes. And this story illustrates that. Romans 6.23 also tells us the price we all have to pay for owing this great debt to our Creator. In other words, the price we all have to pay for sinning against our Creator God is actually eternal death or eternal separation from God. So... The bad news is that our sin, when we sin against God, in other words, you know, that word, the Bible used the word sin to describe any thought or deed or action or, or, or even motivation inside of you that steps over God's good design, right? So God created the world to function a certain way. He told us how he created the world to function in his word. And so when we step across that line intentionally, right, that is sin. That is when we decide, hey, God, actually, I think I'm going to do things my way. And so when we do that, the penalty for disobeying our Creator, even just one time, for anything you've ever done, means that you cannot live in the presence of a perfectly holy God. He is perfectly holy and without sin. And so any sin in our hearts, any sin on your track record separates us from His perfection, from His holiness. Anything less than perfect is, guess what? Imperfect. So our sin separates us from being able to even live with God forever. That's the bad news, right? So as the king in the story calls his servants' debt into account, when he starts to hold them accountable for what they owe, so will God do with this with all of humanity one day in our future. Jesus will return and he will hold everyone accountable for the sin debt they owe. But like this servant... Our debt to God is infinite. We can't repay it, can we? You know, it's funny because we try to convince ourselves that we can repay the debt that we owe to our Creator God. We do that. You may think, well, I know I can't do that. No, no, we try. Every single one of us. And here's what I mean. Think about it. When you do something bad, Right? When you do something bad that, you've, that violates your conscience and you feel guilty about it, you know you've done something wrong, what, is, what do we instinctively do? We try to do something good to make up for it. That's exactly what we do. Right? When we do something bad, we try to do something good later, maybe the next day or maybe the next week, to try to kind of ease our conscience, to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Well, I'm not as bad as a person as I felt I was last week because now I've done this good thing. So I'm sure God is watching me and he's cool with this and he's so glad that I'm, you know, kind of balancing it out, right? Maybe even my good will outweigh my bad. 
This is, this is our natural inclination to think this way, but that doesn't work. We cannot balance it out. We can't outweigh our good versus our bad. Why? Because here's the issue, guys. Our problem is so much deeper than just the little white lie that you told last week. The human problem runs deeper than just your little actions from day to day that gives you a guilty conscience. It's a life and death issue. The Bible teaches us that we are separated from God because of our sinful condition. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And in other words, Paul's saying, It's not just that, hey, I've done some bad stuff in my life. Hey, now let me try to do some good stuff to get God to love me. No, Paul says, Bro, you were dead. Like you were dead. Dead people can't do anything. And so Paul's saying we don't need just some kind of behavioral modification to try to do better. We need resuscitation. That's what we need. We need a completely new life. But the only way that that is even possible is if somebody, or well, if our debt, right, if our debt is paid. If our debt is not paid to God, how could we ever live with Him? He is perfect and holy. We are imperfect, utterly, infinitely imperfect. And He is infinitely holy. There is a gap between us and God that none of us can close by just trying to do some good stuff. And that's exactly what God did. He closed that gap. Ready for the good news? You ready for it? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth to pay your debt. Now, how awesome is that? In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, listen to this. It says, and you who were dead, you need resuscitation, not just some good stuff. You need resuscitation. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having what? Forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And that is powerful and that is awesome. That is unbelievably good news. Almost unbelievable, right? As the king forgave the insurmountable debt of this servant, so Jesus also, he is infinitely gracious to forgive us of our infinite debt to him. But guess what? There is no giant rug in heaven that Jesus just wipes or sweeps your sin under and pretends like it's not there. You know, like you do when you have guests coming over to your house, right? No, there is no giant rug in heaven where he's sweeping it all under and just, okay, it's all good now. We're good. We're good. It's not there. This forgiveness that Jesus canceled or the the debt that he canceled that he forgave, guess what? It comes at an infinite cost to him. Forgiveness is not free. It's a free gift to you. It's a free gift to us. But Jesus had to pay with his life 
to gain it for you. This forgiveness is credited to your account when you fall on your knees as the servant, as Christ's humble servant and confess your need for Him. When you finally turn away from trying to prove yourself Man, if we could all just turn away from this mindset that we have to prove ourselves before God, to our own consciences, to our fellow man, to our, to our family and friends around us. If we could just turn away from this mindset that I'm just going to get it right one day. You know, I'm going to party it up while I'm young and I'm just going to get it right when I'm older. Or hey, I mean, I'm a little bit older now, but I'm just, you know, still, I, I just really need to grow my business and, and, and make more money and I'll get it right later. And if we could all just turn away from this mindset that we need to prove ourselves and humble ourselves like this servant, the second servant, falling at his master's feet and saying, please have patience with me. Except we don't say that we can repay it. We say, I know I can't repay it. Lord, please save me. I cannot do this on my own. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the basis for forgiveness. Jesus and his payment on the cross for your sin, that's the true model of what forgiveness really is. That's the basis for our forgiveness. That's pretty much the whole sermon right there, but guess what? There's two more points. Here we go. Number two. The motivation for forgiveness. Let's talk about that. It almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? That Jesus would cancel that debt, that God would forgive all the sins you've ever committed. I mean, all of them. Even the ones that you're most ashamed of and you don't like to think about and you try to suppress into your subconscious, right? All of them. Jesus forgives all of the sins we've ever committed. So he doesn't just, look at that. What does that mean? He doesn't just match your debt, with just enough grace to cover it. No, he gives more than enough grace to cover all your sins. His grace is greater than your sins. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. Now the law came into came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, God's grace demonstrated through Christ is unlimited It's a love without limits, allowing for not just forgiveness, but get this. Not only is your debt to God canceled through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also God adopts you. That's right. He adopts you into his family. You get a seat at the table. And not just adoption, but get this. More than that, you get an inheritance. You get an eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. You know, it's one thing. It's one thing to be taken off of death row. There's an inmate who's committed murder and he's sitting on death row. It's one thing to be taken off of death row and then you're left to yourself to pick up the pieces of your life. Good luck. But it is a whole other thing to be taken off of death row and then learn, and then you learn that someone substituted themselves for you. (laughs) They died the death that you should have died. And not only that, 
That person's father is bringing you into his family forever and giving you everything he's giving his son. That's exactly what happened. That's what happens when we turn to Christ as our Savior and stop trying to prove ourselves. Do you see that? How would you live moving forward if that were you? Taken off of death row, adopted into somebody's family, and given that kind of inheritance. How would you treat others? How would you live? Your life would be changed forever. So what's the motivation for forgiveness? It's that. It's this. It's an overwhelming appreciation and gratitude for what we've already been given in Christ Jesus. The more, the more we relish in our forgiveness from God, the more we take it in, embrace it, the more we love it, the more we dwell on it, the more we dwell on the gospel of Jesus, what He has done for us, the easier and the quicker it is to forgive others. That's it. That is the motivation. Now, there could be all kinds of other ungodly motivations in your life, right? So maybe, maybe you try to forgive others because, well, you don't want to be labeled as the person who holds grudges, right? You don't want to be Mr. Grumpy, so you forgive people, or at least you put on an act that you forgive people, right? Or maybe you just want the, the situation to end, and so you just want to quickly say that you're sorry for something or forgive somebody because you just you don't want to actually talk through it. There's all kinds of un, ungodly motivations, but the one true pure motivation is the gratitude we've received from Jesus, simply extending that to someone else. The gospel is our motivation. Does that mean that it's always easy? Lastly, the third, the third sub-point that this parable teaches us, right? as God has forgiven us, so we must also forgive others, but guess what? We also see here the practice of forgiveness. It's not easy. The forgiven servant in this story shows us what not to do, right? So this is the negative example. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that he would treat someone who owed him such a smaller amount than what he had just been forgiven. Pastor John MacArthur notes that this servant's actions are an insult to the king. His behavior is grotesque. He says, who could ever behave this way? But this is exactly what occurs every time a Christian is unforgiving. See, every time we... Every time we withhold from forgiveness from someone else, how are we any different? How are we any different than this, as the king called him, this wicked servant who had been given so much by the grace of God, had his debt canceled forever? How could we possibly withhold from forgiveness from anyone else? The only way we can withhold forgiveness is if we don't understand how much we've been forgiven. Whatever someone does to us pales in comparison to what we have done to our Creator, what we have done to God Himself. This is a challenge. I am not standing here saying that this is easy. It is not easy. It is very difficult. Because forgiveness costs something. It costs you. 
It cost Jesus everything. But look what we owed Him. So you see, whatever you think someone owes you, as bad as it may be, it doesn't compare to the debt each of us was in to God Himself, but it will still cost us. What is it going to cost you? It may cost you valuable time. To truly forgive someone, it may take a lot of time out of your calendar that you don't want to give. It may cost you some money. It may cost you tears. It may cost you emotional stress. But I would argue with you that the emotional stress you have from not forgiving the person is going to be greater. I just want to point out that this does not imply that if you are in some kind of abusive situation that you should just forgive the person and deal with it. That is not at all what this is saying. You need to remove yourself from that situation and contact the proper authorities and seek help immediately. But the purpose of this parable is to communicate the principle, right? That's the purpose of this parable, is to communicate the overarching general principle that we should all strive to live by in our everyday situations. So for example, let's talk about marriage and family. I mean, wow. If there's ever been an arena where we all need a lesson on forgiveness, it's with our own family members, isn't it? Maybe you have a sibling that you haven't talked to in a couple years or you talk to very sparingly because both of you are just holding some silly grudge against each other. Maybe you and your spouse need to be quicker to listen, slower to speak, quicker to forgive and understand, slower to retaliate and accuse. I'm not the problem, she is. What about forgiveness in the church? I mean, here we are, the body of Christ, brought together. We're related by the same blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. No matter what our background is or our story is, here we are together, brought together by Jesus and as one, the body of Jesus Christ. Here we are. Yet, how often in the church do we see relationships broken because of unforgiveness? Forgiveness in the world. You know, we live in a very cancel culture, don't we? We cancel people. The media will cut you out forever if you do one thing wrong, if they even hint at it as wrong. But that's not our standard. We don't look to the media to define to us what is right and wrong, do we? We look to God's word and we see, we see this parable. You know, several years ago, my wife and I, we were living in South Carolina and a gunman walked into Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina to a Bible study one night and killed nine people. Later on, as at least one of the family members, there were a couple, I think, who did this, but I know one for sure stood in front of the gunman facing him for the first time after losing their family member, and she forgave him. She truly stood there and forgave him, told him, I forgive you. Could you do that? 
see, that's exactly what we have to realize. When we realize how much we've been given, when we realize how much of our debt has been canceled, all of it, everything bad you've ever done, Jesus laid down his life for that, for you. When you realize that, it changes everything about you. It changes who you are. And to a watching world, it's a powerful testament of the gospel. Forgiveness is redemption on display. If we, if we forgive, even though the person doesn't deserve it, that's the point. It is evidence. It's evidence that we believe Jesus has done that to us, and we also believe, even greater than that, that Jesus is reconciling humanity to himself. And what do I mean by that? That God created us to be in right relationship with himself and therefore with each other. And that his forgiveness of our sins has secured the pathway for real redemption to take place in this world and forever. For all of eternity, the kingdom of heaven. When we forgive, it's a proclamation that you believe there is eternal peace beyond this world. And so you don't have to live in bitterness and harbor grudges and anger that destroy your soul. You don't have to live in that because you know that a million years from now, a million years from now, have you made plans yet? What are you doing? A million years from now, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be gathered in heaven, right? Worshiping him, living in, a, in the kingdom of God. In other words, a perfect society where everything is functioning the way God originally intended it to be. And so the little harbor, the grudge, the bitterness, the anger, why don't you go ahead and show somebody a glimpse of heaven and forgive them today? Again, it's not easy, and I'm not saying it is. I want to acknowledge that every person's situation in here is different, okay? I understand that. But the truth is still the same for all of us. So who are you having trouble forgiving? I don't want us to take this lightly this morning. I know it's difficult, but the first and the best thing we can do is pray. Lord, maybe you should pray something like this. Lord, help me. Help me forgive, truly. Help me forgive this person. And if they have truly wronged me, Lord, help them to repent and let them turn their heart to you. But Jesus, use me to help them see your love and your grace. Forgiveness is powerful. It has released you from the debt you owed. How can we not release others?